uh, probably not my fancy, uh, but things are are shifting. And uh, yeah, the majority of people are not on Twitter. I think that's my main point. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was I was I was waiting to see where that would come back to Twitter. Hello and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting across North America and right there in your pocket. Plugged into your ears every single week. I'm one half of your host, Yael Ososki, broadcasting from the old Austrian Empire, Vienna, Austria, that is. And I'm joined by David Clement, who is in the old British North America. David, how goes it? Oh, it's going well. It's going well. Um... Ooh, lots to talk about. Lots to talk about. The Emergencies Act is back um, in discussion uh, in Canada. There's another, uh, the Globe broke another story in regards to Trudeau and the RCMP. Elon Musk is buying slash bought Twitter. Um, it is, it's been an eventful week. I agree. Uh, a lot of stuff that's been happening. Um, very quickly, we'll plug an interview that we'll coming on. We'll have coming on later in the show. We'll be speaking with Chris Becker of the Honeybee Collective, a Colorado-based employee-owned sustainable cannabis company. Uh, he gives us some perspectives on how cannabis legalization worked in Colorado, how it's rolling out, uh, how it is to operate in the market. Uh, sort of positioning himself against some of the larger, more corporate cannabis players and uh, some thoughts on federal legalization in the United States. Uh, awesome uh, to be able to talk to someone. We probably don't agree on every issue, but uh, at least on cannabis and whatever's happening now, really interesting to speak with Chris Becker. Uh, we'll have that on. We'll put that over there on our social media, uh, consumerchoiceradio.com. All right, David, so I've been plugged up. Uh, I've been trying to work on this new, I got a mini PC uh, with Linux. I've got a couple things running, all these computers. So I've been out of the loop here for about three hours. Uh, what has been going on with Elon? What's been going on with the tweeters? Uh, what you've, you are a correspondent uh, who's been hanging out there uh, for the good of the program. Uh, what's, what's happening out there? Tell us the truth. So, um, Twitter and Elon Musk have come to an agreement on the acquisition of Twitter. Um, I think it's caused a lot of reaction. Um, b b both are wrong. So you have people on the right who think that, like, oh, this is the greatest day ever. Elon Musk is the savior of free speech. And then you have folks on the left who think that Elon Musk is an oligarch and... This is a threat to democracy, and I think that both groups just sound remarkably dumb um, when they freak out about this. Um, starting on the left, I mean, one of the major shareholders um, of Twitter prior to the acquisition were the Saudis. And so if you cared about who owned Twitter now, but you didn't before... You have some very, very warped, um, warped priorities, um, and then on the right, I mean, I was trying to find a clip Twitter. of a head being chopped off or something, but I, unfortunately, yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't have that on me. <laughs> and then on the right, you have people who like, I mean, 
the, their Twitter is still a private company. It can moderate as it sees fit. Um, it could take a very literal approach in regards to what is legal speech and what isn't. Um, but Elon has has also expressed that he wants to work to verify users in terms of making sure that they're real people and getting rid of bots, which I think would be quite welcomed. Um, I mean, to think about what... To think, I mean, not to go back to the Trump era, but to think about the whole conversation about Trump and Russia, what that would have been like if the bot farms didn't exist and Twitter actually had a handle on that. I mean, it completely would have neutralized a significant portion of of the outrage. Um, so, yeah, I mean, is, is Elon Musk buying Twitter a good thing? Probably, yes. In terms of my preferences, it probably moves the dial um, a little bit. I mean, you would have all sorts of crazy inconsistencies where someone very prominent would get kicked off of Twitter, and yet there would be ISIS accounts still on Twitter or some official from the Chinese Communist Party saying that there is no genocide. They're just worker retraining camps. Like... So they have to. I think that I think this will probably help Twitter pick a better lane and a more consistent lane in regards to what is allowed, what isn't allowed, who is allowed, and who who is and who isn't allowed. So yeah, we will we'll see how it how it pans out. But the reactions have just been hilarious. It's a strange world yeah. out there. Uh, so let's um, yeah, thinking about this and who owns. I hate it, but we're back again at that point. Or discussing Twitter on the program. Yeah. Now we have to, f- we're kind of forced to because it's the intersection of online culture, of political culture, of investing, of a uh, rich guy <laughs> just buying up what he wants. Um, I mean, this got to be like one of the single largest, largest purchases of all time. You know, this is not. I think it is the largest buyout ever. I mean, this is, it's like gargantuan amounts of money. And, not something that he'll easily make a profit off of, but regardless, you know, it's I don't I looked I saw the numbers the other day. I don't have them handy, unfortunately, of the actual population of people who's on Twitter, and you know, it's nowhere near the the level of influence that people might think when it comes to ordinary people. When it comes to particular segments, uh, journos, activists. When it comes to highly literate academics. Uh, political figures, yes, and we see an entire class of politician who are catering to that. Um, related to this, I got my absentee ballot uh, for the U.S. Uh, we've got the primary elections for the various parties coming up, and turns out that uh, down there in North Carolina, they've done some redistricting, which every state has to do with every you know new population number. Uh, we've been pushed into the Democrat area. Uh, which is a first. Uh, normally, the county where I grew up, Cabarrus County, uh, total GOP stronghold, mostly always a GOP. I think they had a Democrat in there for about five minutes. Uh, but now we're actually with North Charlotte, uh, which is a heavily Democrat area. And it's it's split-split. It's like north of Charlotte and then uh, West Concord, all the NASCAR rednecks. Uh, it's going to make for an interesting game. Uh, fortunately, we do not have this fellow... Uh, Madison Cawthorn, who's in oh, the district, God. he's he's up north, uh, and also he's going to be, f- he's not going to be in a full GOP district. It's also going to be a bit mixed. 
Uh, this guy's a bit of a troublemaker recently. Showed up at the Charlotte airport uh, with loaded gun in the bag, uh, probably <laughs> twice. Uh, he's had some not-so-flattering profiles in the major press uh, here the last couple weeks. One thing, though, that I did want to uh, bring some highlight to, because it, it is something that at least I do know something about, they were going to accuse him of insider trading. Did you hear that? Oh, yeah, with with a with a altcoin with or something. With, with a nice little coin. And this one was called the Let's Go Branded Coin, because uh, apparently he was at some event with the guy who made it, and they... We're trying to make the case that he was pumping it, and it was like pump and dump. And I mean, I, I looked into this at the time uh, because they were sponsoring a NASCAR automobile, and it, this thing was impossible to buy. Uh, it was very hard, and you had to kind of be a whiz in order to do it. Uh, there were not enough liquidity pairs, which, you know, whatever, if you don't understand what that means, it just means... Yeah, what does that mean for ordinary people? <laughs> it just means that there was not enough, because whenever you launch one of these... Um, coins you need to match it to something of real value uh, meaning a, a stable coin you know something like tether or usdc which is a u.s digital dollar that some guys have created so normally people will put that which is real money and they'll match it to this new coin but when i went in to look there was none of that money there was maybe a hundred bucks in there meaning okay you can only make a hundred bucks like even if you own yeah. all the coins, so not a very well put together project. Uh, but luckily, yeah, uh, Madison Cawthorn, not in my district. Uh, it's going to be more of a, a sort of left leaning affair, I think. Uh, some of the Republican candidates, I don't really know them. I've been following them a bit on Twitter, trying to do some research. Uh, probably not my fancy, uh, but things are are shifting. And uh, yeah, the majority of people are not on Twitter. I think that's my main point. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I was I, I was waiting to see where that would come back to Twitter. Um, that, Not on Twitter. Yeah, no, that reminded me of the. I think it was Dennis Miller. I don't mean to go on a rant here, but <laughs> dude, I used to listen um, to that back in the day. He was so uh, did I. Was one of my he, one of my better programs that I used to listen to, and then I think he showed up on Bill O'Reilly every now and then. And it just got boring. Yeah, he had some uh, some classic rants, but. Um, yeah, so I mean, Twitter, we'll see what happens. Uh, I think the reaction is just silly, but who knows? Um, outside of Twitter, I mean, uh, what do you want to go? You want to go Emergencies Act? You want to go RCMPs? Too much to talk about. I would like to, yeah, I want to. I do want to take some time to discuss what's happening north of the border, so let's talk about that in our next seg, because uh, that'll okay. be good. I did want to pump our tires a bit, David, uh, with the article uh, that was published in La Presse. Uh, so for the French-speaking audience, which is uh, probably about three people here. <laughs> Sorry. Just hello, hey, hello uh, yeah, for those mom. of you who have buddies. <laughs> yeah. For those of you uh, who have buddies in Quebec, um, David and I had an article uh, using much of the same research uh, from all of the other articles David has been publishing across the country on housing, building more homes. Uh, you've heard us go on and on about this, uh, not just ourselves, but also with the various uh, politicians that we've had on. And uh, that was put out there into the ether. It was shared by one of the leadership candidates, Pierre Polièvre. And um, yeah, I think this is good. I actually got two or three messages, Dave. I didn't tell you that from a, from a couple of people who are interested in learning more about our work in, uh, in French, Ooh. just based on, on that article alone. Oh, so very good. nice. Very nice. Yes. And uh, our... Uh, 
our friend of the show, Pierre Polyev, shared it on Twitter. So shout out to Pierre for that. He is uh, making the rounds. Then it's real life. The, the, then it's real life. Yes. <laughs> Once, so yeah. he shares then, it. Yeah, then yeah exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, housing, we've talked about that a lot. But the one thing I am worried about in the lead up to the end of this segment before we talk about some other stuff is uh so home prices have have kind of dipped a little bit in response to the increase in in rates um and my concern here is that people are forgetting that like prior to covid housing was already unaffordable and so some people think oh well now we don't need to do anything because the uh the home prices are only inc- only increased for April, eight uh, percent and not twenty five percent. It's like, well, no, <laughs> that's eight percent on last year's number, which was already a record number, which was off based off la- the previous year's number, which was already a record number. So it's it's not like we're actually seeing some sort of depression in in values, um, and I'm starting to see some people be like, oh, job's done. We increase rates that temper demand a little bit. Maybe some of these proposals aren't worth considering. It's like no. I mean, you guys rewind need to get out of here. Four, yeah, yeah, rewind four years, and we're still in the same place, and it's going to get worse. Um, again, just tinkering with demand. It's that is not the solution to this. And I think we're just going to have to our generation. I mean, look, even if we have the most radical of changes interest rates go through the roof, you know, they stop the money printer. It's still going to take a good seven years before any of this recovers. I mean, there might be a couple projects where prices dip and you can find a deal, but we're just going to, I think, have to change the way we look at this, you know, and we're not going to, the model that I've been thinking about more and more is you buy a house in the middle of nowhere, you buy a shack where at least the, the prices are not, you know, crazy and mm-hmm. find the cheapest rent you can in the city. That's about all you can do. Yeah, yeah. Actually, that's not a terrible idea. That's not a terrible idea. Um, so you have like your your little getaway, and then you rent where it's completely unaffordable. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just depressing times to be a young person trying to save, like, realistically if you were trying to be cost conscious in ter- in terms of your mortgage payments and whether or not you need mortgage mortgage insurance and all that jazz you got to put 20% down on a million dollar home it's 200 grand i who who is making enough money to have 200 grand in savings <laughs> like nah, it's nah, wild, you're just going to have to do a double mor- double mortgage double loan uh, that's the the trying to do a big old mortgage and then you do a tiny mortgage for that deposit so much more of that uh, insanity uh, coming up here on consumer choice radio you guys stay tuned uh, we'll be right back more conversations and then uh, interview with chris becker coming up and welcome back to consumer choice radio block number two uh, we got fired up there in the first part talking about home prices, housing prices, and perhaps the alternative plan of buying some land out in the country. Get yourself a little shack. Find the cheapest rent you can in the city. Uh, I'm sure the uh, the Dave Ramsey show there in the U.S. where they talk about uh, all this kind of stuff, uh, his plan would just be get out of debt as soon as you can, 
uh, buy a house, and uh, yeah, that's it. But uh, most of us can't do that. <laughs> that's just not in the cards there, bud. Uh, so we are going to talk about what is happening on uh, in Canada right now, which um, we're far beyond the um, convoy and the protest, the Freedom Convoy, as it was called, David. Uh, but we've had some revelations this week that came out in parliamentary committees and some journalism uh, that did really make it seem like, uh, yeah, we, we were kind of sold a bill of goods. You got, uh, what's, the, what's the latest there, correspondent? Oh, boy. Clement. So the, the federal government invoked the Emergencies Act in, rega- in response to the protests in Ottawa. And under the law, they have to hold an inquiry, which is an opportunity for them to explain why they invoked it. And quick question is this part of the general law or is it of the particular measure that they passed it is it is anytime you invoke the emergencies act you then have to have an inquiry regardless of what it was invoked for Uh, i think it's in the in the act that's good it says you you have to do it um which is appropriate i mean if you if you use extraordinary measures you should have to justify it and face the music um so then there are, there are two things that happened here. One is they were asked, and the first response is, oh, well, we can't say because of security concerns. Wait, what? I mean, you, you can't invoke it, have the inquiry, and then not answer the questions. And then two, it came out that they were responding in large part to reporting from the CBC about all of these threats and potential dangers and... Um, what could be described as serious risks, but the problem is is that those CBC report, reports were proven to be wrong or false. And so it really looks bad on on the part of, of the federal government and the liberals here because it, they re, not only did they react on bad journalism, they reacted on bad journalism done by state-funded media. Um, and so that obviously fuels, I mean, I don't think you could throw the defund the CBC crowd a bigger softball than this blunder, um, where (laughs) were they working? I mean, it, it also fuels a lot of craziness where like they're working in tandem. It was all an inside job, blah, 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 blah. But when you do dumb stuff like this, it does feed that narrative, even if it's divorced from reality. And so, just a, just an absolute dumpster fire here in regards to w- what you're supposed to do in regards to invoking extraordinary measures and now trying to weasel out of uh weasel out of uh, out of disclosing or really taking any accountability for it and it's just it it's a problem it's a big problem even if it was justified i think this is yeah, I think the main reason that we harp so much on this program and others do too on journalism and media is because often not only do they set the narrative, but oftentimes they set the agenda for politicians to follow, even if there are politicians with their own agendas and they have their own principles and they want to discuss, you know, topic A, uh, the journalists will be there with topic B. I have a I do have a clip of one part of the uh, the parliamentary hearings. I don't know if it was um, this part exactly, 
but it was a live call out, uh, which I loved. Um, there were a number of stories that were published around the, the, the trucker convoy where I believe there was a, a home that was set on fire, an apartment building. Yeah. yeah. Is that what the there story was? A, was? Apartment, uh, the lobby of an apartment building, there was like an attempted arson. And then there were stories of people with loaded firearms in their vehicles. Those were okay, and these were the, conflated, and and somehow the convoy protesters were all responsible. Uh, there is, um, you know, one of our esteemed guests uh, from a couple of weeks ago uh, went <laughs> had a very long Twitter thread on this, and probably was wrong in the end. Uh, but let's just go ahead and play this clip. Uh, um, when um, people who live in apartment buildings uh, find that their front doors are locked and that fires are set. Uh, in the hallways and corridors. Point of order, um, It is... That statement right there has been proven false by the Ottawa Police Service, and there is no connection to the protesters whatsoever, and for this minister to suggest that yeah. is absolutely unacceptable of this committee. Unacceptable. Yeah. Wow, Mr. Motz. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, it's like, it didn't happen. They're not related. It's the same thing with the firearms. There was another exchange with someone in police, and, and the questioner was like, well, did you find any guns? And they're like, no. <laughs> and it's like, oh, so that never happened? So let's, go like, back to the, yes. let's go back to the CBC stories, because I think this is very important. It was essentially, from what we heard, I believe from the justice minister, uh, the idea was that the CBC, which is the Canadian uh, sort of state-funded, state-run media organ that is uh, supposedly independent, reported around the 13th or 14th of February that there was massive amounts of foreign funding to the trucker rally, to the Freedom Convoy. And there was this kind of scare tactic, and really they thought they were losing control and that was apparently one of the main reasons, or I guess one of many reasons, that they did decide to uh, invoke the Emergencies Act. And considering that we actually did get those numbers in the end, you know, apart from the whole Bitcoin thing, but the Bitcoin thing overall was not um, much compared to yeah, GoFundMe and Give Send Go. Do you know go, what the percentage was? It was go. Yeah, the percentage was like... It was way, way lower than than the headlines. Oh no! It, it was the it was to the order of three percent, three or four percent. from yeah. what I read. So none. Which is everyone none. made it seem like it was a bunch of American rednecks funding revolution in Canada, and yeah, that's why we need to shut down everything and uh, be sure we can snoop on everybody's bank account. And so this, here, I, I would hope, I would hope this has st- staying power. I don't know if it will though, because it is a CBC story. But if the journalists were responsible here, if there was a good media uh, industry in Canada, I know there is, they're very self-reflective, I would hope that there's going to be a longer conversation about this and perhaps some, uh, as you said before, facing of the music. Yeah, and you know what I want to see? I want to see the, I want to see more from the journalists outside of the CBC hold the CBC to account. Because and hold themselves to account because they largely built off that. Because I and I see this from a couple journalists in Canada where they complain about the CBC ripping stories, which they do all the time. The CBC will publish a story that was already published in the Telegram in Newfoundland, change a couple words under a new uh, author, and give no credit to the original author, and really undercut private media. 
Um, and I would love to see that type of frustration spill over to, hey, well, these guys are also getting it wrong. Um, they're getting it wrong and no, like nothing's happening. No one, I don't know. Like if you, if you get it wrong, you should, I, there was a U.S. guy who did a thing on inflation in the early days who was one of the people saying, no, we got to worry about deflation. And I forget who it was, but he wrote a long thing basically being like, oh, I was very wrong. I'm sorry, guys. I was very wrong on this, but we never see that. That's uh, David Bonson, I believe. Yeah, I don't even know who that is, but I saw his apology. And, like, we don't see that enough. And it, it all that does is fuel the mistrust with the media, particularly for people on the further left and the right, where they just they discredit everything on its face because people get it wrong with no consequences and... It just creates this cycle where people are like, oh, I don't, I don't watch any of those news programs because I don't know if they're lying. They were lying this time. They didn't admit it, or they double, they lied and they doubled down on it. Um, so yeah, let's check in on some of the large uh, media criticism outlets in Canada. I think one of the top ones. I don't know if you listen, but I have for many years. Canada Land. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're uh, good. Podcast Solid. network. Uh, let's see. Well, they haven't published one uh, since, uh, what, Tuesday. Uh, the ad money fueling fake news. Mm, okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so perhaps they'll have a good one. Uh, let's see. What's an- another one that I really like uh, that I don't even know if it's on the air anymore is uh, the Listening Post. It's actually an Al Jazeera program. Mm. Uh, so they are only every two weeks. It's actually hosted by a Canadian journalist. Uh, they do a lot of media criticism analysis. Nope, no no episodes since then. Let's go to the line. Uh, good substack. Uh, allegations, no. Uh, not seeing any articles just yet. Oh boy, David. Uh, any other media critics we should be on lookout for? Well, I mean, I think if you go further to the independent side, the Western Standard has had some stuff yes, on, and the Rebel on exposing News. this. Yes. I wouldn't count the Rebel News. They're not... I, the Western Standard it obviously is a conservative bent, um, but they adhere to journalistic standards. And when they've got it wrong, and they got one story very wrong in Alberta um, during COVID, they did a full like, "Yep, we made a mistake. We retracted. We deleted. We apologize. We messed up." Um, and so there's a level of journalistic integrity there with those guys and, and Derek Fildebrandt who runs that. So, yeah, I, I just more accountability is just both good for the press, press freedom and democracy. But it's also good if we go on the macro scale of having people trust what they're seeing on TV or reading in the newspaper. Hmm. I'm looking at the National Post. I'm not seeing much there either. What is going on, guy? Uh, maybe everybody is, is just taking it all in, and uh, hopefully we'll have it here in, in the next couple of days. Yeah. Um, but uh, one thing I, I wanted to ask you about this, because I know you were asked uh, by, I believe it was the Western Standard um, little TV program mm-hmm. there, mm-hmm. what is going on with attacks on food processing plants? Yeah, I don't know. I can't figure it out. I mean... Because I can tell, I can tell you the uh, Great Resetter line. Oh, but I, I know, want to know the I know. good line. <laughs> I, I, so, Sylvain Charlebois 
who was on the program. I probably butchered his last name again. Um, he was like, ah. Charbonneau. I know, I know. No, Charbonneau. no it's Charlebois. 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 Yeah. yeah. Um, he tweeted something because someone asked him, and he's like, I don't know. Probably more likely to be insurance fires. Where. Wide, the, that widespread? I think RCMP, though, said there, there were cyber attacks at some of these places, ransomware and the like. Yeah, I've seen those. I mean, those have happened in the energy sector, too. There was a big propane distributor in Canada and the U.S. who had to pay like a $5 million ransom or something. So that's that's all happening. So, I mean, we don't know if it's targeted. We don't know what the cause, like what's the the motivation. But it is problematic in the context of food because, mm. I mean, then what you have is you have lack of supply. You have prices go up. You have shrinkflation where you get less for the same price on top of what we're already dealing with. Um, so not it, good. Yeah. Can I throw you a can I can I throw you a curveball here in our you last sure uh, two minutes? Yeah, All you right. can. This is uh, uh, this is going to be an oldie and a goodie. This is a uh, post two thousand and eight bailout. Dennis Kucinich. The seven hundred billion dollar bailout for Wall Street is being driven by fear, not fact. This is too much money in too short a time, going to too few people, while too many questions remain unanswered. Why aren't we having hearings on the plan we just received? Why aren't we questioning the underlying premise of the need for a bailout with taxpayers' money? Why have we not even considered any alternatives other than to give $700 billion to Wall Street? Why aren't we asking Wall Street to clean up its own mess? Why aren't we passing new laws to stop the speculation which triggered this? Why aren't we putting up new regulatory structures to protect the investors? How do we even value the $700 billion in toxic assets? Why aren't we directly helping homeowners with their debt burden? Why aren't we families faced with bankruptcy? Why aren't we reducing debts for Main Street instead of Wall Street? Isn't it time for fundamental change in our debt-based monetary system so we can free ourselves from the manipulation of the federal re by the Federal Reserve and the banks? Is this I know there's a lot more, David, <laughs> but uh, had, had to throw that in as a winger. Uh, good stuff from Dennis Kucinich. I know it's going to give us some stuff to think about. Uh, we're going to go to our next segment. Uh, we're going to have Chris Becker on of the Honeybee Collective talking all things cannabis. David, talk to you soon. And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting across North America and right there on your podcasting app, Podcasting 2.0. Very delighted for our next guest and our next conversation. We're speaking with Chris Becker. He's a co-founder at the Honeybee Collective employee-owned sustainable cannabis and the best cannabis under the sun. Chris, thanks so much for coming on the program. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. So the Honeybee Collective is a very interesting project. Uh, you're someone who is very familiar with the cannabis space. You've worked in uh, all different parts of it across the country. Uh, to give our listeners a bit of a, an introduction, what is the Honeybee Collective and how are y'all different than so many other cannabis companies out there? Yeah, thanks for asking. So the Honeybee Collective is a sustainable cannabis brand. We want to, uh, our mission is to create community wealth and a sustainable future. Um, so when I say sustainable cannabis brand, I mean sustainable economics and sustainable environmental impact. Um, we source cannabis from growers that meet our standards for both environmental and economic impact. So, um, Cannabis can be grown in ways that's not very good for the environment. So the green rush isn't always so green. 
Um, there's a lot of carbon output, a lot of electrical usage, a lot of chemical usage in a lot of grow operations that um, we, uh, we source from growers that, that uh, use earth-friendly practices, preferably regenerative. So um, re really uh, stuff that feeds back into the earth um, and, and, and uses full circle uh, kind of economics and, and low to no waste uh, uh, kind of processes. Um, and we're uh, employee owned and guarantee all of our employees a living wage. So um, another problem in the cannabis industry that I experienced from my work was a uh, lot of low wages, a lot of um, uh, la lack of opportunity for employees to move up, very definite ceiling for employees and they weren't often becoming owners. Um, and a lot of well-documented lack of uh, diverse ownership in the industry. Um, a, a study just came out that uh, uh, there's like le less than 2% black ownership in, in the cannabis industry here in the U.S. Um, and so uh, th th these kind of cycles of uh, sort of... Uh, <sighs> I don't know, economic oppression, if you will, have been playing out that, you know, w have been present in other industries, but I, I was hopeful wouldn't play out in cannabis. And so we, we, we've kind of tried to create a business model to stand in contrast to typical extractive, abusive capitalism. All right. Uh, plenty to talk about there. Uh, that's at honeybeecollective.com. You guys can check that out. Uh, obviously, Colorado, uh, first U.S. state to legalize. Uh, David and I have been watching. Uh, I've been able to visit, sample uh, some of the dispensaries where it was legal, because obviously local jurisdictions do have some say. Um, how would you say the, the legalization and regulation process has rolled out in Colorado, especially when you compare it to some of the other states who've joined the fold, like Illinois, Washington, Oregon, and uh, California? So Colorado was the first state to ha uh, legalize recreational cannabis. And um, by necessity, most of the business were, businesses were vertically integrated, but rather small. Um, the, the state did not allow uh, residents outside the state to bring a lot of capital in for, uh, up until about two years ago. So it was really a breeding ground for um, small businesses and um, a lot of competition in terms of uh, both price and quality. Uh, it, re it really bred a, a strong market that's great for consumers. Um, and, and so I, I, I'm really happy about the way Colorado has rolled out legalization. There are, there are things to complain about for sure, but relative to some of the other states that you mentioned that are um, really kind of dominated by corporate uh, multi-state operators that, um, are publicly traded companies and not a lot of small business in those markets. Colorado has a lot by contrast. And on, on that note, um, uh, and on, on that note, what, um, why do you think that some of the other states who have legalized, or even if we look at Canada, m maybe missed or ignored some of those successes in, in Colorado? Um, and I ask that just because I we spent a lot of time talking to Canadian legislators 
explaining to them what were good models and what were not. And it seems like they replicated a lot of the bad ones. But I'm curious as to why you think the the Colorado experience or model maybe hasn't gotten the hype it deserves. Um, well, success depends on who is defining it, right? And so um, I, I think that... Uh, just to put it plainly, corporate profiteers saw an opportunity to dominate certain markets via exclusive limited licensure. And they, they thought that that would be better for their uh, returns. And for the most part, they've been right. Um, and uh, it, it allowed companies to enter a market with limited competition. And so there was, there was a strong, um, strong push from from corporations and their lobbyists to not go the kind of small business friendly model that Colorado went. And, you know, in, in fairness, um, the, the way Colorado structured it kept a lot of businesses small. It kept them, kept, kept owners from selling out for a number of years. Um, it kept people from realizing like the entirety of the opportunity that existed. So, um, that and it, a limited license model um, is favorable to prohibitionists, and we still have a lot of prohibitionists in power in the U.S., especially in less liberal states like Chicago, or I mean, like Illinois and Arizona and uh, uh, Pennsylvania and such, where they've gone with limited licenses that um, e easier to get conservatives to support um a, a, a small well-defined limited market versus sort of what what they call the wild west of cannabis when when states yeah yeah and that's kind of always struck me as such a strange um a strange conundrum because one would think that once cannabis is legal republicans <coughs> would, would want to or republicans or conservatives would want mm -hmm. to approach it as they do other businesses which is light touch let the, the market figure it out, let people um, want to enter the market, entrepreneurship, all those buzzwords. So it's, it, it, is, it is, I think, on point that you, you, you highlight that strange anomaly that we've seen both in, in the United States and in Canada, where at, at some points, conservatives have kind of forgotten what their economic worldview was when it comes to the, the legal recreational market or even the medicinal market in some Southern states. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a real contradiction in terms of philosophy. I, I don't really understand how they reconcile it. Um, and I, I think there's also some um, pr pri private prison and, and uh, uh, police union um, support that keeps that keeps Republicans from wanting to see a free market in cannabis as well. You know, it, 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 conservatives in the U.S. take a lot of money from companies that uh, either operate private prisons or unions of police officers that, um, quite frankly, don't want cannabis to be legal because they think it'll make their jobs harder. Uh, <laughs> They, they won't be able to use the smell of cannabis as pretext for, you know, human rights abuses. Not wrong. Not wrong. Yeah. And I would say for uh, for the conservative side, there are, you know, a few. Uh, if we look at the, the state of South Carolina, I mean, look, they're just trying to uh, legalize medicinal. 
and uh, it's been an uphill battle, a lot of things with the Republican Party there. Uh, but I'm wondering your take on any of the federal bills and if you think they're addressing the problems both for you, for you know your employee-owned business, and for your consumers, which I, I've heard you discuss before, that it really should be about the consumers and what they want, not necessarily some you know investment package. Uh, we have seen a number of bills in the Senate. Uh, also, uh, Republican Nancy Mace from South Carolina did have the States Reform Act, a, a bit of a you know Republican-esque, let the states uh, do it, uh, low taxes, uh, definitely get rid of all of the different punitive laws on cannabis, uh, remove it from uh, police's hands. Uh, I'm wondering any of your thoughts on some of the federal bills and if they're, they're actually addressing the right things. Um, you know, I, I think in theory, uh schumer's uh caoa is going to be like what my preference it's got a high tax burden that's probably unworkable especially when you're looking to get republican support for a bill um and and it makes it really hard for businesses to thrive and 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 also if you keep taxes high um reduces the chances that you're going to take market share from the illicit market, which um, is, is tend to, tends to be a stated goal, right? They want to bring, bring people into the regular. Well, I want to see more people brought from the illicit market into the regulated market and for the market to be designed for them to be able to thrive. Um, so in that sense, I don't like the state's reform act because I don't think that the state silos are getting it right uh, in terms of uh, social equity or really for consumer friendly laws. Um, you see a lot of people complaining about prices in a lot of states uh, that have legal markets. Um, so it's not working for consumers and it's not eliminating the illicit market. Um, but that 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 could, the same could be said for for the democratic bills that have been proposed with their taxes. So I think the the answer is somewhere in between. Um, but I, I you know I, I lean more towards the bills that are um, aiming for re true restorative justice because um, j j just to stop incarcerating people in my mind is insufficient when. Uh, communities of color have been so significantly harmed by the war on drugs disproportionately to to white folks so um you know i i i i understand it's a divisive issue any kind of restorative justice uh conservatives tend to cringe at i don't quite understand it other than um you know a little bit of white guilt really but um oh yeah and we've uh you know we are on um, more conservative talk radio, but we've actually uh, had people on and we've discussed reparations and restorative justice. And I think these are really important issues, particularly if we want to reach out to as many people as possible instead of cutting off uh, the segments. Uh, one thing that you, you mentioned, uh, some of the localities, the differences in taxation, uh, we would have thought California would have been, you know, this blossoming place. Uh, but I think you mentioned it before, the problem of the illicit market and a lot of communities that have opted out of offering cannabis licenses, you can't have any kind of dispensaries at all. Uh, I mean, are you seeing uh, perhaps some, some California tourism of people coming to Colorado? Are you seeing that there are perhaps some entrepreneurs or some, some workers who've left the California cannabis market to come to Colorado because it's a, perhaps a better environment? It's not so significantly better that people are really migrating here. Um, when, when companies are looking to get out of 
either California or Colorado. I think they are tending to target some of the states that have more limited licenses and, and higher margins, at least for now. Um, so I, I, I haven't seen that, no. What do you think is the, the long-term prospect of, of cannabis being legal coast to coast? It's going to take some time. Um, there's, there's still a lot of resistance to legalization. Um, you know, in turn, there, there's a really strong chance that Republicans will take control of uh, the Senate or the House or maybe both. Um, and, and possibly that, you know, then the next presidential election, things could flip depending on what the next couple of years look like. So if that happens, um, I don't think you'll see any federal movement in cannabis legalization for a really long time. Um, so you'd still be just looking at state by state piecemeal legislation. Um, and that's, you know, maybe, maybe in 10 years, 12 years, you'd see all states having some form of legal cannabis. Um, I, for, in my mind, the sooner the better. Um, as much as I don't want to compete with Coca-Cola or Unilever or Procter & Gamble with their marketing budgets and product development budgets, um, I think that's when the market will be most normalized, least stigmatized and look best for consumers, which um, I think should, should be a priority. Well, thank you very much, Chris, for joining us on Consumer Choice Radio. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, y'all. Appreciate it.